Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come before you today. Um, We see this in the garden that Adam and Eve were made to receive counsel. They were made to hear God speak into their life to make sense of their existence, and the problem came when they let someone make sense of this world which was not God. But Lord, you have conducted a restoration process to grab not only our ears, but the hearts of those whom you've called. So that once again, the lens through which we view our world is the gospel of Jesus. That our greatest problem is the sin that wages war against our hearts, and everything in the world shows its symptoms. But our greatest hope is what you have done on the cross by ransoming and redeeming a people for your own possession. That in the church, as Paul says in Ephesians, the manifold wisdom of God might be displayed. So Lord, we pray for our church. We pray for our country. Lord, we pray for our hearts in these next moments that we submit ourselves to a God who in all things is working for our good. We pray this in your name. Amen. So in 1938, the British government launched a poster campaign in specific parts of London, which they imagined were going to be heavily targeted by German bombers in what seemed to be um, the unavoidable start of World War II. And these posters um, were largely, they printed a ton, they didn't all get out on the buildings, and they were rediscovered in the early 2000s, and now they've become kind of this pop culture icon. And they include an image of a crown, this British royal crown, boldly contrasted in simple colors. And under it are five simple words. Keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and carry on. And one author reflected on why the Brits have such a fascination with this piece of their culture. And he said this. He said there's something quintessential in the way the posters don't say don't panic, or we will prevail. They say, keep calm. And what that means, and this is a very British sentiment, is we may be suffering something of an invasion at the moment, but there's no reason to start acting rash and hot-headed in manner. We may be a subjugated nation, temporarily, but we're not about to start acting like savages. And what of carry on? As a nation, we've been trained to look past the bad behavior of our rudest guests, especially the uninvited ones. And rather than cause a scene, we shall go about our daily business as if nothing has happened. Keep calm and carry on. And we're working through the book of 1 Peter, and it seems like every time, if you're visiting our church, it might seem like we're just topically addressing whatever's on the news this week, but it just so happens God has given us 1 Peter, and uh, we are working through it. And God is good to his church. And we're beginning a portion of the book where Peter is kind of going into what will be the longest theme developed in this text, which is the intersection between a Christian and suffering. Between a Christian whose identity is not in this world, but whose life is in this world. And in a remarkably simple way, Peter, just as the British government did, is going to address the hearts and the actions of Christians all in the name of their king, King Jesus. 
Because the gospel of Jesus changes everything about us and offers us a present hope and a future reward, Christians can view suffering, if and when it comes, as something which can be handled in a distinctly Christian way. But just as uh, was true in 1939, these churches Peter is writing to are not yet living under the physical persecution which would soon come. But he's writing to a church which, just like 1939 London, saw the clouds of the storm beginning to roll towards them. And living in a broken world means that we see the pains of sin everywhere we look. You don't need to be reminded of that this week, do we? Living life in this broken world means that there are going to be times where we encounter, for a myriad of reasons, our brain telling us this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not right. And in many ways, I think the culture Peter was writing to is not too far from our own culture, where Peter was writing to a pre-Christian culture. We find ourselves in America in an increasingly post-Christian culture, which means that we in the 21st century church ought to have a keen ear, not only to God's word, as this is our authority, but also to the witness of those who have gone before us. How are you to respond when this world seeks to step on the toes of your faith? When this world seeks to demand from you an action, a thought, a tweet, or a text? What will we say and how will we respond when the bombs start dropping in our life? Because let's face it, we can say things like keep calm and carry on all we want, but unless we have a comfort which brings us peace in the chaos, our actions will always be up for grabs for the highest bidder. For whoever promises the greatest amount of certainty, there our actions will go. And so to help us in that moment, Peter's going to provide us three key encouragements for Christians when they face suffering. Three things Christians are called to do in the face of suffering. And this is what we're going to see in the text which Paul just read for us, which is 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 17. The first thing Paul is going, or Peter excuse me, is going to remind them of um, is that Christians are called to each other. Then we're going to see that Christians are called to blessing, not envy. And lastly, Christians are called to hope and not fear. And Peter's first call today is a call that not only begins to transition his text into this broader portion on suffering, but it's actually summarizing everything that just came before. If you remember the passages that preceded this and what we've worked through in the last few weeks, um, Peter has been increasingly narrowing the scope of kind of interpersonal conflict. He starts generally that these Gentiles, these unbelievers, will speak against your conduct. And then he talks about how governments might also speak against your conduct. Masters might speak against your conduct. Even Christian spouses might have problems with you. And Peter here takes a really long time talking about potential interpersonal issues that you might have as a Christian with both Christians and sinners. And do you remember how Peter described the church Back in chapter 2, verse 9, look at what he says. But you, and so at this point, this is the plural y'all talking about the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So we have church 
in the blackest of black warehouses, and we have just purchased another blackest of black warehouses. So we're used to this experience. Right now it is sunny outside, and we are in here, and the light is dim. And when we go from this darkness into light, what do we do? We hope we don't trip on all the myriads of potholes that are out there, right? Coming from darkness into light, it's hard for us to adjust. And when God calls a group of sinners from darkness into light, it is normal that at times we're going to stumble and bumble into one another. That there are going to be times where we step on each other's toes. You see, if we assume that life in God's church is always this storybook of perfect people getting along, we've already forgotten that no one comes to Jesus as a perfect person. We come as sinners in need of grace. Even if we are saved sinners, saved by grace. And look at what Peter says to those who are saved together as the church in chapter 3, verse 8, our first verse of today. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So here we see our first call today to Christians in the face of suffering. Peter reminds them that you are called to each other. Peter's calling the church to a real sense of unity that is rooted in brotherly love. In all the ways the church lives, it is to strive for a culture of encouragement, for care, and for love of one another. That's one thing that in this time where many of us are watching church online for various needed reasons, we need to remember that this is also part of the church. Church does not simply exist as information transfer. The church exists as a place where God has so designed it in an ideal world where we come together and we encourage one another through everything we do. We encourage one another by listening to the sermon. We encourage one another by responding in song together. We encourage one another by reciting the Apostles' Creed together and confessing sin together and greeting one another with a holy at distance. That's what we do. (laughs) And yet, we often forget this. But the Bible's careful to remind us always of this. Hebrews 10 says this, 10 verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How should we stir up one another to love and good works? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the day, or encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The church exists to encourage one another for gospel conduct, to encourage one another for lives of holiness in light of the day, the day of judgment, the day when Christ comes back, drawing near. And because of this, Peter now begins to call the church to care for one another in the same way, and he gives four ways that we're to do this, and these ways are all defining what is brotherly love. Brotherly love is smack dab in the middle of these slew of adjectives he's using, and all of these are describing brotherly love. So what does it look like to provide brotherly love to brothers and sisters who are in Christ. Because most of us would say, we have it, and we do it. But here, Peter is giving us a checklist of sorts to challenge where it might be showing up and to applaud that by grace, and to challenge where that might not be there, and to hopefully apply grace to that. And so he gives four things. He talks first of unity of mind or harmony. Do you understand those who are with you? Do you have a same vision of seeing God glorified in your life? Do you have similar thoughts on what it looks like to live out the Christian life in accordance to God and treasure Jesus above all things? Do you think not only of yourself, but also of others? Sympathy. 
Do you actually care about the trials and the celebrations that are in the lives of others around you? Do you really want to know what's going on in their life so that you can better understand it? And then that comes next to compassion. Compassion is just sympathy applied. (laughs) We can be sympathetic all we want, but the gospel calls us to act compassionately towards those to whom we have sympathy, to care for, to comfort, to encourage, to admonish, to love as God has loved us. And lastly, humility that is considering others as more important than yourself. You see, when you come to Sovereign Hope and we have membership as this way in which we hold each other accountable to following Jesus in all of life, when you are becoming a member, you're not only pledging to love those around you with this kind of love, but you are actually inviting others to love you with this kind of love. You're inviting others to be sympathetic and compassionate and humble and have harmony with you. You are inviting those to love you and care for you as God has called the church to do. And why is Peter reminding people of this? Because we live in a culture that loves to talk about love. Why would we need to be reminded of it? Shouldn't it come easy? No. (laughs) We know it doesn't come easy. And that's why we have to remember as the church the foundation upon which our community is built. Peter shares another illustration of the church in chapter 2. You remember this in verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And so later in verse 6, he calls that living stone the cornerstone of the church. Verse 5, they continue, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What's the metaphor he's using here to describe you? You're a rock, a lumpy, bumpy stone that's getting stacked on top of each other. And as lumpy, bumpy, oddly shaped stones We're going to, at times, hit each other with our elbows, poke each other with our points, and bear each other's dead weight. And on any other foundation, this won't work. On a foundation of my preaching, it will crumble. On a foundation of this church's community, it will slowly fall. On a foundation of personal comfort, it will not endure because we are different and we don't by nature match up. But we are built on a foundation of Christ as a cornerstone which is able to hold us in place because of his work, because of his love. The love of Jesus which establishes the church is the love which frees us from having to find ourselves as the center of our whole church life. When you go to Best Buy, you are the center of that consumer experience. When you come to the church, Christ and others are the center because we've already been satisfied by what Jesus has done. So we can give and love and serve out of that overflow instead of having to be pandered to by everyone who's around us. It's only the grace that satisfies us by seeing that Jesus has brought us peace with God that we can lay aside our own privileges and instead serve others. And for Peter, this point is not just a point for people who like the emotions of church. It's not just for the huggers. It's not just for those who are extroverts. This is, if Peter had to label the essential businesses of the Christian life, here the church is essential. Why? Because of the presence of suffering. 
life as a Christian is going to be hard. And if you are unsupported, if you are uncared for, if you are apart from the church whom Christ has joined you to, then this world will be harder than it needs to be. God has given us the church so that we might calm each other, comfort each other, and carry each other. We are so often calmed just by, uh, this is why I love discipleship, of mature believers helping younger believers and, and younger believers encouraging and even helping older believers. When I went in to have our first child, well, I wasn't having it. My wife was. Um, I remember there was, it was like a newer nurse who is hooking my wife up to an IV. I'm already scared out of my mind. I have no idea what to expect. And I get there, and he puts the, the thing, that's the technical term, into her arm, and I look down, and there's just blood pouring out of it. <laughs> And in that moment, I'm already high strung. I already have no idea what's going on. And uh, I'm just looking at the guy. And I'm like, Do, is, is now when we panic? Is now, is now when we start acting like this isn't normal? And as long as he was calm, I was calm. And there are times where as we gather as the church or as you're meeting somebody, those who are older and more mature can encounter things which are troublesome, but they can actually bring us the peace that it's, this is okay, that we can make it through this. And even more, we encourage one another in our worship as the church. A few weeks ago, I was really wrestling with a, a sort of spiritual melancholy. I was sitting right over there in my new chair that's now put in the corner of the church. And, uh, and I, was, I was wrestling during worship of all the things that are difficult in my own life. And I was beginning to throw a sort of pity party. And it was like affecting my worship. And I was playing this woe is me card. And then I looked. And Eric was sitting actually right here. <laughs> And Eric was sitting there while his mother was dying in a hospital room that he couldn't get to because of COVID-19. And I looked at that, and I said, if, if this, if all of this is good enough to satisfy that and comfort that, that's good enough for me. That in seeing worship from people who are people like us, who suffer like us, and yet are satisfied in Jesus. I too can find satisfaction in Jesus when my own heart is in trouble. The Christian life is too difficult a life to live if we're unable to work as a functional part of Jesus' church. If that is not you, if you do not see this gift of the church as something essential to your walk as a Christian, then you either don't understand the gift of the church or you don't understand the trial this world will provide you. And to help us understand that, Peter now begins to turn to the trials this unified and loving body will face in the world. We see this in verses 9 through 12. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here we see Peter's second point. Christians in the face of suffering are called to blessing and not to evil. In a world where he assumes that Christians might at times be reviled or treated in an evil way, he calls Christians not to return evil for evil, but instead to bless those who harm them. Why? Because Christians themselves have received a blessing. 
I had an opportunity once to go to a sandbar in the ocean that was called Stingray Island. And it was this shallow sandbar which throughout history fishermen had gone and gutted their fish there and it attracted this resident population of stingrays. And you go out there and you kind of feed the, the stingrays and walk amongst them on the sandbar. And while we're going out there, the guide was telling us a little bit about the stingrays because they sting. And so he's explaining this thing, and all I heard was tales of, like, archer stingrays just, like, hitting people at distance. And so he explained that they don't shoot their darts or their, their stingrays like darts. They don't swing it like swords. It's, it's just a defense mechanism for whatever type of stingray this is, is when they get scared, they run, and when they find out that thing is chasing them, they, they come to a full stop, and they flip up their tail, and then whatever it is runs into the barb and realizes there's better things to eat. And so he says, when you're in here, and those, when you're, when you're in the water, and the stingrays come towards your legs, don't panic. Don't pick up your feet and try to tread water. Don't try to shoo them away. Don't try to kick, because the more you panic, the more you move, the more likely you are, you dumb person, to kick a stinger. If you just stay still, nothing will happen. It is physically impossible. And I was like, that makes complete sense. I understand the physics and the science and the logic behind everything you just gave me. And I got into the water, armed with this knowledge, and as soon as one of those things started coming towards me in the water, all of my bravery fleeted. And something in my brain is like, run, kick, dive, slash, go, get away. And it took everything in me to do what they called me to do, to take this knowledge, which I affirmed to be true. It makes sense to me. Don't kick, don't get a needle jabbed through your calf. I understand it. But the experience tests it, doesn't it? And in our salvation... We can look at all the wonderful things God has done for us, all the great things Jesus has provided us in salvation. Jesus has vindicated us. Jesus stands in our defense. Why do we care if someone says something stupid about our faith until someone says something stupid about our faith? And then it is so unnatural for us to not kick it. And here we begin to see the nature of, of persecution that Peter's church is going through. And like I said, I think there's uh, similarities between the churches Peter's writing to and the churches today. And that's because there's no state-sponsored violent imperial persecution at this time. That's going to come for Peter's churches in around 40 years, but not to this day. But what there was, was an increasing tension in culture where their hope and their actions were being seen as more and more foolish. And today, whether it's our view on sexuality or abortion or pornography, we're prone to be mocked. Christian dating couples are prone to be made spectacles on what they're missing out on. And we're prone to be called names, loveless, misogynistic, bigoted, hateful, not Christ-like. And we know that what sin does is it creates in us that urge to kick. It creates in us a distrust in everything that God said, and so when those things happen, our tendency is to kick. 
But born-again believers must learn to resist that urge. In fact, look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 12, and then through 13 and verse 6. We're just going to read part of verse 12 and 13. Speaking of his apostolic ministry, he says, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Well, that makes sense, Paul. You're an apostle. But look at what he says in verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And so Peter and Paul go so far as to not only say, don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but they actually say, bless them. Bless those who revile you. And again, I said this last or two weeks ago, we always tend to say, well, they didn't understand what we're going through. They understand it, understood it far more than you ever would know. We have the entire comfort of Christian history when we are persecuted. They were the first Christians. And they are the ones saying something as bold as this. Why are we able to do this? Because we are called ourselves to a blessing. Peter is making it very clear in this text, Christians are never called to give up anything which they're not provided in the gospel. We bless because we've been blessed. And to show this, Peter quotes Psalm 34, which we see in verses 10 through 12. And this is a psalm of David, God's king, when David himself is wrestling with how he's to conduct himself towards those who want to do harm. And this is what it says in in the context of 1 Peter in verses 9 through 12. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days... Whoever doesn't want a stingray barb through the chest, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So one question we might have when we read a text like this, what does it mean to bless those who persecute us? What does it mean to bless those who revile or do evil against us? Well, I think, in a sense, Peter's using this psalm to answer it. It looks like turning away from evil and not leaning into it. It looks like laboring for peace instead of digging in our trenches. It looks like holding your tongue instead of loosing it. It looks like standing still and petting the stingray instead of kicking it. And why do we act in such a counterintuitive way? Verse 12 shows us. Because God is for the righteous. God's face, his favor, his ear is towards the righteous. And if we are in Christ, we are made righteous because of Christ's righteousness. Jesus has performed perfectly. Jesus has performed rightly. And by faith, we get everything we didn't earn from Jesus so that we are now the righteous ones. And in this moment, we look back and we see that in the darkest of times, Jesus has won us favor with God. In those moments when culture is against you, God himself is for you. In those moments, we're afforded a unique but a difficult opportunity to show our trust in God, to trust that we believe Christ was sufficient to win us to the only one capable of satisfying and saving us. 
In those moments, turning to God reminds us that because of our faith in Jesus, God is not far from us. He is near to us. He is listening to you. He is like a good father who is caring, listening, and guiding, even at times when it seems he might be most distant from you. And our comfort is is that if God has ordained the cross for good, won't he also work this for good? You see, I want you to see the, the tension of this text. We never pray as a fully righteous person. Only Jesus was righteous, perfectly. We're declared righteous in Christ. And yet here we see that even people who are not righteous, God will answer their prayer. He will hear them. Why do we have confidence that he cares for us? Because the only righteous person prayed to his father that the cross might pass and his prayer wasn't answered. Because Jesus, the only righteous son of God, walked fearfully but reverently and obediently to death. For you sinners, God is for us. We have comfort in things which are not eternal damnation because Jesus has removed the burden of that from us. What a good news that God is for us. You don't need vindication to be comforted when the God has given when Jesus has restored us to the God of comfort in the cross. And so because of this, Jesus makes it possible for us to continue to do good even when things are not. That's the big picture we're looking at today. I should have said this earlier. What we're going to see is that the hope in Jesus gives us the ability to do good when things are not. Hoping in Jesus lets us do good things when we encounter things which are not good. And this theme continues to develop into our next point today, which is that Christians are called to hope, not to fear. Peter continues, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter here opens up this section with kind of a bomb of a rhetorical question. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And the first answer we give as people who are studying God's word is this. Well, in 2 verse 12, you say Gentiles. In 2.13, you say government. In 2.18, you say masters. In 2.24, you talk about how Jesus was harmed and and maligned, and he was killed on a cross. He was murdered. In chapter 3, you say that wives might act sinfully towards husbands, and husbands might act sinfully towards wives. So to answer your question, Peter, everyone might harm me. Everyone might stand against me. And yet, the second answer to his question, who is there to harm me if you're zealous for what is good, is no one. If you're in Christ, no one can harm you for what is good. 
And this tension is, is resolved as we begin to walk more and more through this text and see where this is actually answered because now he begins to define for us suffering and how this fits in the life of a Christian. What is suffering? It's displeasure or pain that's caused to us physically, relationally, emotionally, spiritually. But we have different kinds of suffering, don't we? And depending upon what sphere we encounter that suffering, we respond to that suffering differently. For instance, every year, thousands of people pay money and line up in the hot August sun to run 26.2 miles on roads they can run on for free. Don't know why. And so I looked at this. I, I, lo- I said quotes on running a marathon. And I looked it up on the internet found a webpage. One of the first quotes I saw is from a guy who won the New York City Marathon three times. And he says, running a marathon is like the best bullfighter. And then the very next sentence, he says, most bullfighters end up dead or gored. <laughs> Things are going well. So I read another quote to try to entice me to just do this. And this is another author who said this, you're running on guts, on fumes. Your muscles twitch. You throw up. You're delirious, but you keep running because there's no way out of this hell you're in, because there's no way you're not crossing the finish line. It's a misery that non-runners don't understand. (laughs) Hook, line, and sinker. (laughs) Sign me up. To run is quite literally to suffer. But for a runner, it's a suffering that's worth it because of the finish line. You see... I have made jokes to, I, I don't, runners are friends with me, don't know why, because I make fun of them all the time for it. And yet, they continue to run. They are undeterred by what I have to say. Why? Because my scorn is not of greater weight than the finish line. And if humans are able to suffer such discomfort for the simplicity of an earthly finish line, how much more should believers be willing to suffer for the promise of a heavenly one? For one that grants us all satisfaction in the world. You see, Peter tells us to not fear those who want to harm us, but instead to set apart Christ as holy. That word he uses is just simply to sanctify Christ. We think of us being sanctified, us being set apart, but here he says sanctify Christ, meaning Christ should be set apart. He should be the finish line of the soul where it is so worth it. For a runner, all of the suffering they encounter is no suffering at all because of the reward of the finish line being so set apart in their mind as distinct. So too for the Christian, does Peter call us to understand our suffering as worth it because Christ is set apart in our hearts as holy. In chapter 1, Peter fans this flame of setting apart Christ as holy as he he begins to outline this. Jesus is the ransom payment for our sins. Our sins demanded death. We had been kidnapped by someone and something which wanted to damn us, and Jesus paid that debt. He satisfied God's demand for justice by dying for our sins in our place. But more than that, he promised us joy and love now as we trust him. And yet more than that, he promises us an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
who are being endured in faith by God. For those who repent and believe in this Jesus, death can no longer kill you. The world no longer needs to satisfy you because Jesus has lavishly loved you and he himself has drawn near to you. You see, so many of us spend our lives living to find peace with the world so that we might feel accepted, vindicated, absolved. But here, the gospel holds out peace with God. The one God who is able to save you or condemn you because of your sins looks on you peaceably and says, welcome because of the work of Jesus. If you have ever felt the tension of this world pulling at the allegiances of your heart trying to provide peace, I hope you see this gospel. I hope you see what Jesus has done and you repent and you realize that it's only Jesus who brings you peace with God. And when you understand what that means, the way we act in experiences of suffering is different. Look at how David puts this in Psalm 84, verses 10 through 12. For a day in your courts, that's the Lord's courts, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So here we have David saying, I'd rather be exposed to the elements as a doorkeeper to the house of God than to shelter in the tents of the wicked. What makes him say that? Because he realizes that it is God whose warmth and comfort is of greater effectiveness than any shield of the world. To be exposed to the elements near to God is better to be hidden, than, hidden from the elements hiding in evil. Why will we not fear what man fears? Because Jesus alone is worth it. He alone can provide what we really need and he's already proven that on the cross. And it's this nature of Christian hope which begins to now press out Christian conduct. We see this in uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In various times, I was talking to various people about this text this week in our body, and we all kind of realized that this verse, verse 315, is often stripped out of this context and just kind of broadly applied to evangelism. Like the expectation is when you're a Christian, you're going to be walking down the street and someone's going to come up and say like, you walk differently. Tell me a sit-by-me coffee. Walk me through Romans Road. Tell me about the hope you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That has happened to me zero times. And it has happened to the people who I talked to this week. Zero times. Now maybe you've had someone do that, but let's remember the context that Peter is talking about here. The context is that this happens when Christians are looking foolish by worldly standards. This happens when you stand out not like a stunning knight, but like a sore thumb. When the world sees our Christian conduct and tries to squeeze it out of us, it is our resistance to it which creates a sort of sinister inquisitiveness. For example, Eric Little, 
was an Olympian, a gold medalist from Scotland, who turned away all of this lucrative life of sponsorship, this public speaking tour, and all the riches that came with it, and kind of the dawn of what is the modern era of the athlete, to become a missionary in China. And he was constantly being hounded, even by churches, to say, if you, if you just do a teaching circuit, think of how much money you could raise for the churches. If you stayed here and enjoyed this lavish life, this life that every other Olympian wants, you would find all the satisfaction you want. Why are you throwing it away to go to China? And one year he was back in furlough in England, and he was interviewed, and he said this. He said, oh, well, of course, it's natural for a chap to think, that's what you say when you're from there, um, to think over all of that sometimes, but I'm glad I'm in the work I'm engaging in now. A fellow's life counts more at this than the other. Not a corruptible crown, but an incorruptible one. See, he wasn't asked this when he was standing on a podium. He was asked this when he seemed like a fool for throwing it all away. He was asked for his hope when it was only his hope that was made distinct. It's one thing for a Christian to have their faith be seen. It's quite another thing for a Christian to have their hope be seen. The truth is, suffering doesn't much expose our faith as it exposes our hope. And what I mean is that many times we can affirm our faith. We can affirm that we believe Jesus satisfies us. We can affirm we believe that Christ has paid the penalty for my sins and brought me back to God. But if that doesn't produce hope, then it's actually revealing something about our faith, isn't it? Hope demands conduct. And it's conduct here that's exposed. Make no mistake, Peter is saying that your easiest moments in evangelism will often come at the greatest cost. Moments when it's only your hope which can make sense of your conduct. Do you understand that hope? For you, when you think of Christianity, is it just a set of principles that you agree because it makes logical sense when you read it in Scripture? Or is it something that you hope in? That this does not only logically make sense. This is everything. If this were to fall, I wouldn't just be duped. I would be crushed. I would be without hope. Because my only hope in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, my Lord. Now let's be realistic here. There are many of us in here who have suffered as Christians. There is cancer, loss of loved ones, chronic pain. All of these things happen to Christians. And when we encounter them, we suffer as Christians. But few of us in America have suffered for being Christian, which is what Peter is talking about here. And I know for many of us, when I start talking about faith and hope, which Peter talks about hope and its role with faith, Paul talks about faith and its role with hope, both of them are essential we can often look at that and we can wrestle with the answer. We say, well, do I just have faith? Do I not have hope? And we become so introverted in understanding our own emotions that we begin to doubt, like, am I saved? Do I have what it takes? But this is why we need the encouragement of this text. Because what Peter is saying is that for those who have true faith, suffering will expose the hope of confidence in your heart. If you continue to walk out your Christian life, and pursue good even when the world finds it to be foreign and strange, that hope will actually 
manifest itself in your words and in your conscience. You see, worldly pushback to your Christian conduct is God's way of working this hope deeper and deeper into your soul because that's part of God's good plan for you. Look again at verses 14 through 17. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The very opening pages of Peter's letter, he compares suffering in this world to a refiner's fire burning off the dross of your life. And here the Bible says, this is how good God is. The Bible says the same suffering that the world will use to convince you that God is not good is the same suffering that reminds us that God is better than anything else. That there is nothing more that satisfies than this. Because it's in moments of suffering as a Christian when what is exposed is not the praise of culture or the strength of yourself, but the enduring grace of God and Jesus' love for you, strong enough to be a shield in the worst of all moments, but gentle enough to not crush the burning wick. This is the love of God for us in Jesus. Why do we do good and endure what isn't? Because Jesus is worth all of it, and his love is what satisfies us. Look at how Paul puts this wonderfully in Romans 8. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So I want to stop here. Both Paul and Peter lived in an era that was pre-significant persecution. I have no idea if and when we'll experience that in America, but we are certainly pre-it. It is not here to the extent that it has been in Christian history, which means everything we're reading is preventative medicine for us is preparing our hearts for when this happens. And when Peter and Paul are asking the same question, who can be against you? We should be listening and checking our own hearts. We should be preventatively applying this to our own hopes. Verse 32, he continues. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. In other words, it wasn't you. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, so it's describing the experience of Christ followers, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor 
things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus, we can endure all things with the love of Jesus. So what do we do with this text? Well, together, we as the church refuse to hide or compromise our Christian conduct because of the response of culture. And in moments where the world might raise itself against us, we continue to do good because we have seen a Christ who has laid down his life for us. And in that we take heart and we endure for Christ has done marvelous things for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray um, for us in a country that is uh, in tumult all around, and yet in a country where we still have many, many, many liberties and protections as Christians. Lord, I pray that you begin right now to work this hope in Christ deeper into our hearts so that we know that our ability to follow Jesus is not rooted in cultural comfort, but rooted in the actual work of Jesus to save. Lord, I pray that our hope is shown in moments of tension. I pray that we are fearless when it comes to our Christian conduct because it is better for us if it's God's will to suffer for doing what is good than for doing what is evil. Lord, help us do these things because we desire to live long and see good days. We pray this in your name. Amen.